um, it's a mobile number with no one on the end. Now, that's helpful when you're really tired and you've done a lot of preparation, and I'll explain a bit more later. But the funniest thing was I was laying face down on the bed like this, and the phone starts to ring, and I'm like, Jane, who's that? Now, the phone is about nine inches from my head. And Jane's over here. Jane, who's there on the phone? So Jane, being Jane, gets up, walks around the bed and picks it up and picks up the deadline. My wife is... And she put it down. In the morning, she went, why did you get that phone? <laughs> why are you asking me who it is? It's one of those... It's like when the door knocks and we ask, who's that then? It's like, why would you ask? Have we suddenly seen through solid objects? Well, the phone is, I wonder who that... You know, yes, you don't know who it is yet. So that wasn't a great start today. So I kind of came in shattered today. I thought, yep, you know, it kind of happens. Sometimes you feel like you're about to take on something and it's going to be tough and there's a few distractions along the way, but that's not going to stop me. You know, random phone calls in the middle of the night will not stop me bringing what I believe God's got me to bring for you. So if you can get my Prezi up, guys. Um, if you don't know who I am, by the way, I'm Andy. I'm one of the elders here and a prime member of the leadership team of this church. And we're coming back after our Christmas break into a series around Ephesians. So it's, it's a book called Ephesians, if you don't know what that is, written to the Ephesian church by Paul, who was a fanatical Jewish uh, teacher, for want of a better word, who comes to Christ, supernatural meeting with Christ, comes to the Lord and becomes an amazing, incredible teacher, evangelist, and all around amazing Christian. Great, amazing guy who writes most of what we read in the letters of the New Testament. And we're going to cover a section of Ephesians today, which I think is foundational to our faith. And I feel like when I was prepping it, I prepped it Friday, all day, and by Friday night I went up and said to Jane, it's absolutely rubbish. It's terrible, Jane. It's the worst preach I've ever prepped. I don't know what I'm going to do. Now, my wife being my wife said, I'm full of faith, God will bless you, and I'm going to pray. So on um, Saturday morning, I go to get to go with Joel to get his hair cut. Believe it, that has been cut. <laughs> now, there's a lot of it up there, but it has been cut. Um, and I'm sitting in the, um, in, the, in the hairdressers, and I'm feeling a bit low because I've got no preach to prep, no prep to, no preach to preach, that thing, yeah. And um, no sleep, you see. And so I'm sitting there and I've got a bit of paper and I just say, Father, will you just help me? And I start to write something. And so what you've got today, it was written in a hairdresser's. Um, and it carried on and I finished it like late last night. And it, so it took up most of Saturday to get it ready. But it felt like God was saying to me, Andy, I want you to say something because I think you need to wake a few people up. In fact, I think you might need to wake a lot of people up. And Andy, in fact, I'd like to wake you up too. So, and I felt this morning like you need, I'm sorry to say this because you don't like it when I say you, you need to wake up. I need to wake up to something. And I think what's today's message is really important to shift our minds away from some distraction and back to the purpose of what we come to church for and what we believe God has done for us. So if you're a Christian, it's going to be a bit of a shake-up, a bit of a, a wake-up call. Um, and also, um, if, even if you don't know the Lord, I think it's going to be powerful and useful to you. So today I've called this God Loves Atheists, and you'll, you'll figure out why as we go along. Now, so here's how I'm going to do it. The best-known scripture in the Bible, anyone know what it is? Yeah, John 3.16, we kind of all went there, that's correct. John 3.16 is the most popular uh, scripture in the Bible. Bible Gateway, which is one of the main websites you say, yep, that's the one that gets the most read, the most hits. Um, So I'm sure we know it fairly well. 
Um, and in a bit, I'm going to ask you all to read it out together off the screen. How Anglican have we become here? Yeah, we're going to kind of collectively read it together off the screen, okay? And in a bit, so I'm going to do that in a little while. And um, before we do, let me explain something. Um, I'm going to look at sort of this content from two different ways. For the construct of it, the scripture we're going to look at today, how it was put together, and then what it actually says. And the reason I want to look at how, it put, how it's put together is something about grabbing attention. And so in 2000, there was a study done um, on attention spans. And they looked at what the average person could concentrate on before they became distracted. So put your phones down. I probably lost you, but hi, my name is Andy. Um, yeah, so um, they looked at the average time that it took to be distracted. And in 2000, it was... 12 seconds. On average, people could concentrate on something without starting to become distracted for only 12 seconds. That is really short. Well, they repeated the study in 2012. And guess what it was? Let me show you how long. Eight seconds. By 2012, the average attention span of a human being was eight seconds before starting to become distracted. Anybody know what the average attention span of a goldfish is? It is nine. We are one second behind goldfish in our ability to concentrate. Now, concentration, I mean, a goldfish is kind of more... But we've got about... Like we had, in 2012 anyway, eight seconds. Now, if that rate of decline continues, it's probably something like six by now. And um, some blame technology. A lot of people will blame technology and say, it's, but others say it's just the amount of information that gets thrown at us. Our attention span cannot hold for very long. And I've watched my kids, especially uh, Jess on her phone, just flicking, 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 one thing, another thing. It's like literally just going from app to app to conversation to conversation, not even one second of duration on anything, moving, moving, moving. Um, so either way, it's six seconds, and however it came about. Now, I've got a stopwatch, um, if I can open up my phone, yep. And basically, we're going to read out at a nice, comfortable pace, don't rush, we're going to read out... John 3.16, the most famous piece of scripture, the most hit piece of scripture. Ready? So I'm going to count to three. Don't rush. Just read it out. Ready? One, two, three. For God so loved the world that he gave his one son. So that no... Nope, stop. That was it. Six second laws you got to whoever. So for God so loved the world that whoever gave... That he gave his only son that whoever... So that's how long a six-second attention span can get you to, to whoever. Not even believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, you can read it really fast and maybe get it in six. But after six seconds of the attention span of the average human, we've got whoever. We've left them with whoever. And there's even a longer translation. The literal translation, because obviously we're reading a bit of an adaptation, is this one. Now, I tried this one, and I got to, for God so loved the world that his son, uh, the only, and that was as much as I got in six seconds, before distraction kicks in and something else starts to be considered. So, now despite our struggle and the difficulty of realising that if I only have six seconds before someone might become distracted, that might be all I could get to 
is just whoever. John 3.16 is still a work of brilliance. In whatever it might be, eight or nine seconds it will take to genuinely read it, it gives the crux of what us Christians believe. And so it's amazing for the fact that it covers three very critical things. And I want to mirror those three things when we look at Ephesians 2 together. And I'm going to use them as my theme. So I'm going to explain the term saved many times. We use that term so comfortably, we sing it in our songs. We want to understand what it actually means. We say, you know, Jesus saves. And Shearer gets the rebound. It used to be the joke in my school. But Jesus saves, you know, and there's bumper stickers with it on. And we say it and we sing it. But it actually, we know what it means. But actually to a world that doesn't know church, it could be mean nothing. And Dan shared with me today about sort of, uh, the other day about meeting someone who didn't know who the disciples was and was not young and thought the disciples were candles. That's not a stupid person, just because they had not been told. It's, it's easy to think that our language communicates simply. Jesus says, what does that mean? So it's important we explore it. My point is that John 360 is amazing, but it's a little thin, and we've got a lot of stuff crammed into a very short space. And if you want to get people's attention these days, it seems that if you just say John 3.16, in the way it's structured, people will be like, yeah, whatever, it means nothing to me. You know, I don't really see I need that. I mean, I'm sure you do love, God loves the world, I'm sure that's good for you. But it doesn't actually resonate. And so I'll explain that in a minute. Why do we get to that take it or leave it attitude towards essentially a very short piece of the gospel just crammed into 10 seconds of speaking? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to explore it by using this, these sort of three key themes. So these are the themes, I think, that come out in John 3.16. Save for what? God. Save by what? By Jesus, his son. And save from what? Well, from perishing. Because if we got to the end, we would say, so after whoever, when we kind of ran out of words, believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. And that's all good. That's all good. It's, it's great to know that. And... The trouble is, kind of the bit that I want to talk about comes last, perishing. And my challenge is, in this society today, when you say to someone, God loves you, they're like, yeah, I don't know, whatever, you know, maybe, kind of good. Gave his only son, yeah, but I guess you Christians believe that. So none should perish. That kind of really doesn't get talked about very often. That kind of gets left off the end, because that's the uncomfortable space we sometimes have to go in. We get to God so loved the world type conversations, and, and already people are getting distracted. So I want to mirror John 3.16 with Ephesians 2. I mean, literally mirror it. I, I show it in a different sequence, and cover the topics in a greater detail, but in reverse order. And I think Paul does things, the structure of his letters, and the way he puts things, is not accidental. We believe all scripture is God-breathed and for teaching, rebuking, correcting. And the way in which he structures Ephesians 2 is very interesting and very helpful and very powerful when we think about it. He does it in the opposite order. He does it in the order of saying, save from what? Save from what? You're saved from God's punishment and perishing. Saved by what? You're saved by God's grace and love in Jesus. Saved for what? For God's glory. So keep that firmly in mind, because Paul is teaching Ephesians believers who are made up of Gentiles and Jews, so Jews and non-Jews. The gospel message needs to be recognised as a message primarily of salvation. Primarily of salvation. Jesus saves. The message of the gospel is that Jesus saves. Christianity is about a saviour. And so the natural question we have to wrestle with these days 
is that people don't recognise they need to be saved at all. There's a difficulty from recognising, why do I need to be saved? And if you just tell them God loves you and Jesus died for you, well, yes, that's good for you. But what if I don't need it? I'm fine. So let me read the scripture and let me unpack it. This is Ephesians 2. Let me read the scripture out. Let's talk about save from what. So let me see if I can get the scripture up. Whoops. That's not what I want to show you. I will read it out to you. It may be not right on the present. I'll read it out to you. If you've got your Bible, look at Ephesians 2. I'll come back to it in sections in a minute. It starts with this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's how it starts. That's the beginning of Ephesians 2. Less than three seconds. Paul's got your attention in perhaps four words. And let me hopefully use that to grab yours. You and me were dead in our transgressions and sins. I'll explain that more, but Paul wants us to remember what we've been saved from, and if you're not saved, sorry, but what you actually need to be saved from. The people he's talking to are very much physically alive. So dead to what? Dead to God. He's saying in three seconds, seconds, listen, you can be physically alive, but you were and you are spiritually dead. The original word in the Greek is nekros, which literally means like a dead body, a corpse, something without life. And I think Paul even knew then that sometimes we have to get the point across very, very quickly to grip someone into a lesson they need to hear. And the natural response to this is, what do you mean then? In three seconds, you said to me that, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So let me just read the whole thing to you. And sorry, it's not on the screen, it'll come up broken down in a minute. But anyway, just listen if you've not got your Bible with you, if you have, follow with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so I'm going to unpack all of this in a bit. Because one of the weaknesses of the Christian message in our modern society is I think it's a really weak message. It's very soft. It's been dumbed down so much that it really doesn't convince anyone that they actually need to hear it anymore. And if you have a message that just says, listen, you're in trouble, and if you just believe in Jesus, you're in, you're kind of fine. That skips past a lot 
of the fact that Jesus needs to become Lord of your life because right now something else is Lord of your life. And the thrust of Ephesians is he needs to replace the current things that we worship with himself. There's far more to it than just simply he dies for your sins and if you believe in him, you're made right. There's a lot more to it than that. It's about embracing him and understanding this is the life you had and this is the life I want you to have. This is why I have a challenge if you're a believer now up front. Who is Lord of your life? Who is Lord of your life? Is it Jesus or is it you? Because if it's Jesus, you'll do what he says and you'll want to please God and you'll live a life free from the stresses of performance and works. If you are Lord of your life, you're going to find that your mood swings up and swings down. You're high, then you're low. Things get on top of you. You struggle. You get depressed. You start to despair. There are moments in your life where you become the Lord and he suddenly distances himself and you start to struggle. That's not to condemn anyone. That's not to convey anyone. It's to remind us there are times when you need to fight to get God and Jesus back to King and Lord. Back to the positions they own and hold. Lord and King. If I say Jesus is my King, what do I even mean? We've kind of lost it in our society now because we were studying this very recently. King has lost all its power. King means like the Queen like it's good for tourism. And a nice old lady in a big house that costs a fortune to refurbish, apparently. She's nice and she's useful, and I like the queen, but she has no real power. We have to remember that king, when the Bible was written, kings had absolute power and authority. So to say Jesus Christ is king in the definition of Scripture means he is Lord, and I honour him and I worship him, and I thank him for providing a kingdom in which I live. see, Jesus never lets you down. His promises are everlasting. We, on the other hand, are intrinsically selfish. We're carnal. We're driven by lust and ambition. That's the way of the world. And what Paul wants to do at the beginning of Ephesians 2 is to contrast that with the way in which Christ wants to, God wants to take you and the way in which Christ leads you. So let's explore saved from what? Which is where this does it right. Saved from what? Now, I'm going to do a typical Andy Sermon fact. Love doing these little strange things, just to kind of make us think for a moment. Does anyone know who Alexander Selkirk was? Not very famous guy, yeah? thinking. No one kind of knows who he is. All right. He was a Scottish sailor, and he's the inspiration. He's the real Robinson Crusoe. Okay, so this is Selkirk on the left. That's the fictional character, Robinson Crusoe, on the right. But Selkirk's real, and he inspired Crusoe because of his story. Now, short version is that he fell out with the captain of a ship that he was working on as a sailor, and basically, after the arguments went on and on, the captain said, right, I've had enough of you, and he left him on an island, and he sailed off on an island called Juan Fernandez, which is in near Chile, off the coast of Chile, and he left him there without anything. I think he left him there with some weapons, as you can see in the picture. And that was it. Selkirk survived for four years and four months. He's the longest recorded survivor. Many don't survive more than weeks. And he survives that long. And it was unbelievably tough. Um, But he's one of these guys. He managed to survive. Many don't. The thing is, when you're on a desert island, as Selkirk was, or anyone stranded in that situation, you know you need saving. 
You know you need to be delivered from this situation because this situation is difficult. It's hard to sustain yourself. You've got to eat. You've got to feed. You've got to stop being dehydrated. You've got danger all the time. So you know you need to get off. You know this is not a good place to be. This is hostile and harsh. And one of the challenges these days is that people don't know they need a saviour. They think they're okay. And if we don't get past into eight seconds of John 3.16, they miss the point that right now where you are today, you are perishing. And it's a hard message to receive. It's not an easy one to deliver on a Sunday. But the world is perishing. My sisters, my stepsisters and my stepbrother and my stepmom, who I'm seeing my stepmom today through in my mind, don't know the Lord and I'm looking at them and I don't think you're perishing. But the truth is, they're perishing. They're perishing. Do you not understand me? They're perishing. And the people you know who don't know the Lord are perishing. And it should be an inspirational motivation. So when we sing on a Sunday morning, the goodness of God, we're not singing that he's good to me. We're singing that he's good to everyone who's perishing. What Paul does so powerfully here is making it clear, here we have it for you, that you were dead in your trespasses. Now, I can unpack tons of this, and I could take ages, and I could try and go through every ounce of Scripture, and I'd be nervous because Duncan sat here, and whenever I do Scripture exposition, I'm like, oh, my word. <laughs> and so I thought, what would I do with this? Because I think we've seen these kind of Scriptures many times, and we've probably heard things, and I could exposition, ex- exegesis, I could go through it, I could go through every line of it, and you could read that in a book. What does God want to say to me and you now, today? And I said, focus me, Lord, on something. And I want to make the point in the very first verse. This word, trespasses, trespasses. It's not a word we use much. We use sin quite comfortably, but we don't use trespassing. So we can sort of assimilate sin, doing bad things, naughty stuff, right? So just name a sin. Anyone? Lusting, okay. All right. Name a trespass. Not so easy, huh? What's a trespass? I get sin, there's seven deadly ones, it's written down. I can get sin, but trespassing. Why is Paul opening up with, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked? Christians can say you're a sinner. We don't say, hey, you're a trespasser. This would sound weird. I need to tell you, I think you're a trespasser. What? You're a sinner. Well, I know that. (laughs) Sin's cool. Trespassing. I can live here. I'm sure I've got a right. So, what does it actually mean? Paul's trying to remind us we're not just sinners. We're off the path. We're leading a life away from God. We're off the path. We don't just break rules. We live a life away from God. And in our time, sinning and sin is not something that has the same resonance anymore. People are kind of dull to it. And there might be a new thing to start to talk about in some ways in trespassing. Some now just define sinning as, if you look it up, guilty pleasures. Guilty pleasures is kind of one of the definitions of sin. Magnum, Walls Magnum even had a series called The Deadly Sins of Ice Creams, named after the deadly sins. So Paul's making sure we know it's not just sin that separates us from God. These events, these things we do, we're actually off the path. We're living a life away from God. In Romans 8, he actually says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, 
The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. And in Romans 12, it, it kind of famously says, one of my favourite scripture. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Paul, back in Ephesians, he's listing out what it looks like when you trespass away from God. What that starts to happen when you make yourself Lord of your life and you start to conform to the world. Now, I was, I became a Christian in my 20s, so I can, I can assimilate to this. Some of you were raised in a Christian family. In some regards, it doesn't have quite the same resonance. But let me tell you, even if you were born into a Christian family and raised as a Christian, you were still saved from this world. And I can tell you that when I look at some of this scripture, it says, the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of our bodies and mind. That slogan in ice cream says, give in to it. It literally says, seven deadly sins, give in to it. Do what you like. That was me in my late teens and early 20s. Did what I like, had no consciousness of sin. Really didn't think, I called it guilty pleasures. Lived a life, and I lived a life like that, away from God. I was obsessed with going out, drinking a lot, and finding girls. And I did everything I did in my music career to just promote that. I became a DJ because DJs were popular. I did a lot of this stuff just to satisfy my cravings, to see if I could make, get myself in a position of adoration. I like to people to like me, and I wanted girls to like me. That's the pattern of the world. It's a sign of disobedience, and we might as well just lay it out now. What Paul says is these are the, the tactics of the prince of the power of the air. Now, do we know who that is? That's Satan. These are his tactics to draw the world into a place where there are, there are passions for the flesh, carrying out desires of the body and the mind. So to walk into the pattern of the world, to follow the pattern of the world, is to follow the pattern of Satan, the path of evil, and to trespass away from God. So what is God's path then? What's the path that God's calling us on to? Well, partly that's something personal. That's down to the walk that you're on, for sure. But I don't want to kind of dismiss it that simply. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts to tell us some of the things that this means. Matthew 5, he says to us, the law says, God says, don't murder. That's kind of a sin. But let me tell you what life is like. Don't get angry. The law says, don't commit adultery. That's a sin I can understand. That's cheating on your spouse. I say don't look lustfully along someone else, upon someone else. That's a life. That's what I'm calling you to, to live a life like that, when you can deal with those things and realise these are the things that I don't want you to do. It goes on and on. It, the, 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 that section of the scripture will go on and tell you many of those things. The point is we need a saviour because we're not just sinners, we're trespassers. And as a result, we deserve some wrath. Again, an uncomfortable word, wrath. God's got wrath for me. Yes, he hates sin. He hates trespass. We are away from him and he wants us back. Somehow we need to recognise that people are building up a sin debt they cannot pay. We were building up a sin debt we could not pay. So the question is, are you sinning? I am. Are you trespassing? Sometimes I think I really do. I get self-centred, I think about me as Lord of my life, and I start to wrap everything around how I feel and what I want, and not around what I believe God wants. I forget I need a saviour, and the gospel story is a story of salvation. And so, saved by what? 
Well, John 3.16 says what Ephesians 2 goes deeper into. It's what motivates Jesus to take on our sin and our trespass. And this is where Christianity proves itself to be nothing like any other religion. And I'm trying to speak to quite a lot of Jessica's friends at school when they talk to me about religion, because they really think that Christianity is just another religion very similar to many others. It's just your choice against the religious choices you may have. And it's nothing like that. See, every world religion and people's own belief system generally think of anything to do with a heaven and an afterlife. They understand there's some kind of separation that good people get something that bad people don't. So, you know, the commonly used analogy of Hitler. Well, if Hitler's in the afterlife, I hope he's getting punished. And I hope, but I shouldn't be. I'm, I'm kind of generally a good person. I don't deserve anything bad in the afterlife if there is one. Because I did this, I didn't do that. That's not... My nan's, I'm in, my nan's in, my brother's in, everyone in my family's generally in, but the person at the bank who turned me down for the loan, uh, frankly, they shouldn't be in at all. The person who phoned me at four o'clock in the morning this morning shouldn't be in at all. I mean, frankly, that's disgraceful. And we, we kind of start to separate, and, and it's pretty quick and pretty easy to realise it starts to, to fall apart because it's based on you know, this false view of who's the judge, and we start to separate people out. Christianity is based on something far from that, and it seems almost lost in our culture, It's totally centred on God's mercy, his love, and his grace. Grace means, in my view, and I guess this term's been used, unmerited favour. Unmerited favour. Christianity is based on receiving the unmerited favour of God. Something totally undeserved. That's why I said God loves atheists at the beginning. I put it in the title of my thing. Because Paul laid it out right at the beginning. He said we were once living a life far, far away from God. In fact, atheists don't even believe in God. So in some ways they get a little bit off. If they don't believe in God, why would I need to worry about what he thinks? We who kind of believe in some kind of a God, and many people do, some kind of a God, would have less of an excuse to understand, well, why don't I know what he wants? Either way, simple fact is in verses 4 and 5, Paul tells us what we are saved by. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So even when you're spiritually dead, God, he made you alive with Christ only and only because he loves you and nothing to do with you earning it. And it repeats it in verse 8. It makes an even stronger point. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not by your doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. Paul is laying something out that flies in the face of the Jewish beliefs at the time the people he was speaking to and every religion that teaches that you have to earn God's favour and love in some way. You have to earn it. You have to perform to get it. You have to be a good person. Someone says you're a do-gooder, a typical Christian, a do-gooder. Like you do it because that way you get God to love you and that way you get into heaven. What Paul's doing for me, he tells me, he wants to take every ounce of stress, God wants to take every ounce of stress and performance out of being loved by him. Every ounce of stress that I have to keep this thing up to get his love because he's saying he loved you when you were so far from him. Why do you think you have to perform now to gain his love? You don't. 
And Christians, brothers and sisters, when people get stressed about where they are with God, often it's because we've forgotten what grace is like. We never deserved it anyway. We didn't earn it in the first place. He loves you no matter where you're at now and where you were. There's things that there's a, there's a hope that there will be things coming out of it, but it's not going to cause God to stop loving you. One of my favorite songs is a, it's a really terrible old song because it sounds like a white guy rapping. So I don't know, but it's this song called Lord, I'm grateful, amazed at what you've done. My finest efforts were filthy rags. And the chorus is grace. It says basically, I can't do anything to love you more and I can't do anything to make you love me less. And it's a song that gets me out of sometimes the doldrums I find myself when I'm thinking, I'm not performing well enough. I'm not reading my Bible well enough. I'm not praying sufficiently. I'm kind of losing it. I'm kind of feeling dry and I'm distancing myself from God. And God's saying, right now, today, for some of you who feel like that, he loves you. He's not stopped loving you. His arm remains outstretched to you, no matter how dry or distant you might feel. He still loves you. His grace saves you and his grace continues. He decided to go to unbelievable lengths to prove how much he loves us. He sends his one and only son into this life. He leads a blameless life to contrast it with us and says, right, once a thought, I'm going to put sin onto this man, the most undeserving one of all. And he's going to pay for that sin to show that I'm a merciful and I'm a loving God. It will prove it. It's going to look grotesque because that's how bad sin and trespass actually is. And then I'm going to raise him up and I'm going to restore him to demonstrate that sin has died on the cross and Christ took it. He's the saviour of the world. It makes no sense. It makes no sense because we think we can or we should save ourselves in some way by doing good stuff. Somehow being counted as credit against us, against all the bad stuff. God says, that's not the path I want you on. That's saying you decide the rules and you need to hear my rules. Your rules of salvation are based on good deeds. They're called works in scriptures and they don't stand up to any tests. That's how you end up deserving who's good and who's bad, who goes to hell, who goes to heaven. Grace is the only answer. God says, I give it to you free so no one can boast. I give it to you free so no one can boast. God takes all the credit, leaves no space because he's the only way that you can make salvation work. Freely given, freely received, and nothing to do with me or you. Otherwise, it's judgmental, divisive, and it's dividing. So I'm just going to close with something on Save for What, and then we're going to just listen to a song and reflect a little bit. And I'm going to say why I felt God wanted me to bring this message. And it's not an easy one to bring. I'm going to keep it simple. Save for what? Firstly, we're saved to glorify God. We're saved to glorify God. To contrast him against the world and praise him. To sing about him on a Sunday morning. To declare how amazingly good he is. To worship him and to thank him. Because God deserves and desires our worship. And in verse 7 it says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. God wants us to acknowledge that his immeasurable grace, that totally undeserved favour and kindness, has been demonstrated in Jesus. And he wants us to speak about it. He wants us to declare it. We gather here on a Sunday not to run a club for people who love each other. We come here to run a church that worships and glorifies God and sings about him and declares who he is. Because of the immeasurable riches of his grace. And when we die, 
when we do go to heaven, that mission, that salvation mission is complete. We rejoice now because we rejoice for the future as well. We're already living saved lives. We're already being saved. The second reason is for good works. Now, that might say, hang on a second, didn't it just say bad, good works don't do anything previously? Well, yes, the best way I can briefly define it is this way. Good works before you receive salvation, they're for your glory. You can do everything, anything you like. To, you can make the planet better and claim you're doing it for the planet, but you're doing it because you want the planet to be better for you and your children, and etc. It's for your benefit. After salvation, it's for his glory. You suddenly have a different view of things. You decide, no, I, I respect this because he created it. He loves us. We have a different view. So before, before salvation, things are basically for your glory. After salvation, he starts to change our views and say, for his glory, I want to do these things. So, God changes your entire perspective. He creates a world for us to enjoy, and we respect it, and we love it. We help old ladies across the road because God loves old ladies. And frankly, with my knees, 50-year-old men could do with the help across the road a bit at the moment as well. You go to work, you try and be a good employee, you try to be someone who's honourable because God is honourable, and he loves honour and truth. You don't fill your taxes. You want to love and serve people who don't deserve it because that's exactly what God did for you. He loved you when you didn't deserve it. And I'm going to close by reading John 3.16 backwards, which is probably heretical somewhere. And we're going to sing a song, which will be mostly, mostly sung to... In fact, could the band get up now? And could we get the sound on? Um, we're just going to sing a song to close, which is one I want you to listen to. And I'll talk a little bit just before we go into that song. But John 3.16 backwards reads like this. And it's like the Ephesians 2 structure, but backwards. And it, think about this. Six seconds attention span. So that none should perish. We believe God gave his only son because he loves the world so much. The message I wanted to give today is to realise that we are on a mission to save people. Jesus' mission is to save, and we are on that mission and people are perishing, and the world is struggling, and the world has become deceived into something that is tragic and leads to destruction. And whilst it's great to come to church and it's great to celebrate that I am saved, I am deeply concerned that the thing we really need to move ourselves into is a hunger and a, and a sorrow for the lost of the world, for the lost of Watford. There are tens and tens of thousands of lost people in our town. And they need to hear the gospel. And God needs to become Lord of their lives. And it isn't about shouting the gospel at them. All I'm saying to you is we might need to rethink about, not go up to people and say, you're perishing, you're trespassing, you're a sinner. But think about when we're not... You know what? If I don't say something, they're perishing. If I don't do something, they're perishing. If we don't collectively do something, they're perishing. And I want me, Andy, to be more troubled about that than I am. To not be so concerned about, and I love working with this colossal team now, it's huge, but not so much concerned about the amount of energy I put into drumming as I would put into telling people about Jesus because I'm worried that they're perishing. And I want us to get that to the front of our minds because then some other stuff that's currently distracting many of you will shift out of you. The things that are about really how you feel about your faith and your walk would start to get a little bit out because you go, hang on a second, 
primarily my focus and my purpose here, and our purpose here, is to try and stop people from perishing, because that's what Jesus died for. And if we don't get that, we should stop coming. I sound like Terry McGovern if you knew who he was. And I don't mean that in a harsh, horrible way. But what on earth are we here for? We're here to glorify God, yes, but we need to have a heart for those that don't know him. Because that's your sister, your brother, your uncle, your friend, your cousin, mine the same. And so I want us to get into a heart, actually, that says, I need to change where I'm at. I'm telling you I need to change where I'm at. More trouble, more disturbed by the fact that people are perishing and I'm doing very little about it. We're going to sing a song. We don't expect you to sing it unless you know it. But basically we want to sing this song as just a reflection to close on something that's wonderful, how much he loves us. How much he loves us. I asked during this time, would you just think and pray and ask God, would you allow to get back into my focus the fact there is a perishing world and I'm not saying I'm going to get upset or distressed. What I'm going to do is I'm going to become more determined to try and do something about it. And tonight at 7 o'clock, that's what the prayer meeting is going to be about in my house. I'm encouraging you to join us, as always. Our house is in chaos. We have building work going on everywhere. I don't care. Come and find a space. And let's just ask God firstly, would you get our focuses back on the salvation mission of Jesus Christ? And would you help us start to become more effective in that? And tonight we'll start to pray for the people that we haven't prayed for for a long time. You know, Neil shared about losing faith in something. I think I've lost faith. I'd lost faith in whether Jesus could really save this country in my lifetime. And I'm saying, I'm not having that. That's a sad, that's that's really restricting the power of God. No, by your spirit, would you come back into us? Would you give us the words to say? And would you bring many lost to salvation? Because right now, they're perishing, and it bothers me. Let's, um, Let's sing.